Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, we kick off a special eight-episode miniseries on Netflix's hip-hop evolution documentary series. Nate is joined by Alexi Ald and Eugene S. Robinson, his cohorts from the YouTube show If the Shoes Fit. This week, they discuss the first episode of Hip Hop Evolution, The Foundation, which tells the tale of hip hop's invention in the Bronx in the 1970s and focuses on three key innovators, DJ Cool Herc, Africa Bambata, and Grandmaster Flash. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox. I laid the plan for Spider-Man, and I put the S on Superman's chest. (laughs) I wrestle with Hercules, and I swam across the seven seas. Ah. A beat, a beat. That's Uh right. Now you know why this man sings uh, instead of raps. Because what we're here to do is a special let it roll Hip hop evolution. If the shoes fit collaboration, baby. Mm -hmm. What we're reviewing today hip hop evolution, uh, HBO originally. A docu Netflix that went to Netflix. Hello, Mr. Stoffer. Oh, oh, I, 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 we got a professional here. A Canadian rapper of Rwandan origins is in search of the origins and evolution of hip hop via interviews, film, music clips, and street scenes. Lots and lots of street key scenes and gums too. I thought I was gummy with my smile, but damn this brother. <laughs> Are we talking about Shadrach? Yes, we're talking about Shadrach. And and I, I should introduce you guys because many letter all listeners do not know you. Alexi Old and Eugene S. Robinson. Alexi? That's right. I'm Alexi Old, author, Seven Secret Source Inspiration, snappy guy for career procrastinators, host of If the Shoes Fit, and also a former music industry attorney, a virtuoso. And Eugene S. Robinson? 
a failed musician, a failed journalist, a failed martial artist, a failed actor, and here with you now. Yes, he's the lead singer of Oxbow. He's the lead editor of Ozzy.com. He, uh, what was the hip hop magazine you used to write for and edit? I didn't do it. Oh, there's a black. Magazine. There's a black fashion magazine. It's Sorry, cold, it's all code magazine. <laughs> black hip hop, all the same. It, it, it was a, it's also it was a fashion, fashion magazine for men of color. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so this is who we are. We're all. We've all three sat down and watched hip hop evolution. At least the first episode. So far, so good. And I gotta say, it's an excellent documentary. It gets, um, you know, the broad history of hip hop quite well. This first episode focuses on first the, the the holy trinity of hip hop. DJ Cool Herc, the first man to post to host a hip hop party in the Bronx. Mm. Africa Bambata, the guy who puts together the four elements of hip hop and added a fifth. And we'll tell you what that is in a bit. And third, Grandmaster Flash, the man who turned the turntable into an instrument. First, I'm, surpri I'm surprised you didn't mention the guy who first picked up the microphone. We'll get to that. That's that'll okay. be our second episode, but it's the second half of this episode. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and but we'll get to that next time. But for now, we're just talking about DJs. And first, they set up the context. They do do a little bit of historical context. And the two things they point out are one, New York City in the early '70s was ruled by disco. And the second thing they point out, not just the early '70s, baby. <laughs> I know, but but this show is about the early '70s, yeah. so and a whole bunch of context, stuff they leave out. Of course, and we'll get to that. But New York City in the early 70s was ruled by disco, which was newly emerging and had not gone national yet. It's just in New York City pretty much at this point. And the Bronx is on fire. It's been split in half by freeways. It's had massive white flight. It's got the worst landlords in the country, if not the Western world. Massive fires, overwhelmingly African-American. It's the poorest. African immigrant and uh, Latino. Yes, yes, plenty of Puerto Ricans there as spread well. The Cubans, spread the Cubans, Cubans, Puerto Ricans, uh, Dominican Republic guys, so and Jamaicans. That's right. Which, yep, to, yeah, and, Tobogan, uh, Tobago, Trinidad, the yeah. Trinidadians. Yep. And in particular, one young Jamaican, DJ Cool Herc, and they don't mention his Jamaican heritage. And let's Not just at all. Get to that. Not at all. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I thought that was shameful, actually, because, you know, the, the Toastmaster tradition, toasting, coming from the islands, was, I think, probably the precursor. Exactly. He, exactly. he moved to exactly. the Bronx when he was we'll 12 years that. old. But anyway, we'll, get to, we'll get to all that. We'll get to all that. Rage. DJ Cool Herc is famous and legendary for two things. He's the first man to host a hip hop party, which means it's a kid with a sound system and, and a microphone. He's got turntables, big speakers, and a microphone with somebody toasting over it, which anybody who knows anything about Jamaican musical history knows where that came from, but they, they leave that out completely. The second thing he did, and this is his, as far as I know, his novel contribution, and it's one is he focused on the drum breaks he would he would mix the records so that he just played the drum breaks he'd play songs that had drum breaks maybe sometimes drum and bass and that's all he would play and he would have two two of the same record going and he'd loop it so it would so it extend those breaks and that 
right there is revolutionary. It's also a little bit reactionary, and they do make that clear in this, that, that Herc was rejecting disco. And the records he was playing were a little bit older, more James Brown funk, and mm. also some eccentric stuff, like Apache, which is an English oh, you know, my guitar God. band that album, the International classic. Bongo Band. Classic, oh my God, that's such a great song. Yeah, but and the way he remixed it, and of course the the version they're playing is the Grandmaster Flash remix. But yep. anyway, yep, that's the basic yep. outline. Now, Eugene, you were in New York City at the time, and you were already a sentient walking around yep. young lad. You were what yep. in high school? Or... In seventy three, bro, I was eleven. Okay, so you were in junior high. Uh, yeah, I was. Yeah, my elementary school. Yeah, I was. I was. It was elementary school in Bed Stuy, Brooklyn. Oh my God, your information. You got like the worst research staff ever. <laughs> I, 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 hey, maybe I, he was one of the writers for the show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, I, I went to school in Park Slope, the Montessori Academy. Uh, the Tony, private, Tony Private School. That's right. Bro. I see. That's I why see. he was able what, to get into the disco. That's that thing. I mean, What's I knew that? you were black. I knew you were from Brooklyn, so I just assumed. My and, bad. And and Flatbush. Uh, well, I, I lived in Crown Heights and 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 Flatbush. So so you were aware of disco by this point, right? Uh, yeah, I was big in the disco at this point. Um, but also in a weird turn for me, when I hit twelve, I started listening to heavy metal. Twelve and then thirteen, fourteen, I started listening to punk rock and disco. Um, I didn't encounter hip hop until 1976. So three years after they started in the Bronx, it made its way to Brooklyn. And it was Jimmy Spicer, who uh, at the time, his name was Dollar Bill. And he changed his name to Jimmy Spicer. And then he did it. He his hit song, Dollar Dollar Bill, y'all. And that was one of the first big hits. And he his first words to me were, uh, you can call me Dollar Bill and I can anything and that little bit of doggerel i did at the top of the hour was one of his that i that oh. stolen over the years so yeah and and alexi what were you doing in 1973 uh i was one year old and uh i was probably in jamaica at the time visiting um my father's family so you know That's unlike I, keep DJ cool Herc, younger, I wasn't there for 12 years <laughs> <laughs> and so i was in border Texas completely blissfully oblivious to this, but I was aware of the New York Dolls, which is like the only yeah. album that had gotten my attention and just one novelty song, Stranded in the Jungle. Um, but I tell you, man, the first time I met Johnny Thunders, it was like like revelatory. I must've been about 16 and I was like, you know, I was not so much a super fanboy, but if there was anybody who I thought, if you want like the epitome of fucking cool, it was right there, really. Okay. And, and funny and smart, but whatever. Uh, off topic, but 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 good. He's good like, info. Fuck this so, up shit. Let me tell you about uh, Johnny Thunders. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about you. Let me tell you what I liked. Uh, but okay, Alexi. Now we've we've teased it and teased it, but they left an enormous thing out. And I want to mention one thing that they left out first, and that is that disco and reggae were both DJ-driven musics before hip hop. But both disco and reggae were recorded by bands in studios, just like every other kind of music up to that point, except they were the audience for it was people dancing to clubs in New York to disco. David Mancuso is the guy who started one of the first discos, although there were some other DJs doing this stuff where they're remixing records, and that's where 
you know, that's how people experience disco. It wasn't just like an OJ's record or whatever, a gamble and have production. It was a gamble and have production on a turntable mixed by somebody mm-hmm. like David Mancuso who would stretch out the breaks, make it longer and longer and people would dance for a long time. And reggae in Jamaica, they're playing in these big sound systems and they've got somebody maybe talking over it, over the records. Yeah, they would but, have it on the, uh, what would they do is they'd put it normally on the B side and you have the, the 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 DJ or you'd have somebody so you had these sound big sound systems that were set up playing rhythms or rhythms as they call them and by the selectors aka the DJs uh, sometimes they would toast sometimes other people would toast other words uh, known as like rapping over the music so that's something that my father like used to talk about when he was a kid you know they would have situations where they would take a lot of times they get records from the U S or from the U K and they would talk over them. So that whole tradition is something yeah. that I guess it's, you know, uh, so for DJ Cool Herc, like somebody that grew up, I mean, 12 years old coming to the Bronx, he brought what he grew up with and he saw to the U.S. So the fact that the this documentary is supposedly going into the, the origins of hip hop music, where it came from, and just totally ignored the true origins from DJ Herc's experience, right? If you talk about his evolution, totally ignored it. So I don't know if it was something where it was an oversight. I don't know if it, I don't know if it's reflective of the fact that it's a Canadian production. No offense to the Canadians. It's a Canadian production, but not a Canadian production that has Caribbean roots because anybody that knows anything pretty much about hip hop, you know, knows about the uh, Jamaican connection. I will I will argue in their defense that it was a decision made in the interest of time and simplicity, but they had to know it. I mean, Jeff Chang's book, what is it, Can't Stop, Won't Stop, that came out in 2005, it spends an enormous first chapter on Jamaica. It makes all this stuff very clear. And that is a yep. book that they are definitely aware of. And that's like yep. the book on hip hop. So I don't think there's any way that they didn't know that. I think that they cut that out because – that would add another five, ten minutes. That's a whole nother no, episode. It, it would make Shadrach's people look bad, right? Because at least he can say, you know what? Oh, Canadian, Canada, Rwandan. But if he's a situation where he's like, oh, I'm coming to the U.S. And oh, guess what? Uh, this music, uh, DJ Cool Herc, like his people didn't come from the U.S. They came from somewhere else and they brought something. He was feeling bad about his own heritage. That's why he acts that shit out. <laughs> fair enough. Fair this enough. Is Jamaican but- pride. Yes, but the one last point I want to make about reggae that I didn't get in there. Reggae was also, you know, it was recorded in studios, but it was only heard on those sound system as records. The Bob Marley and the Whalers and stuff didn't tour until they went to England and put a band together. Like in Jamaica, it was a DJ driven medium. So hip hop's the third musical form that's DJ driven. Well, sort of, right? I mean, I, I remember Blackwell, who I interviewed live, was saying that the record stores in Jamaica would put speakers on the on the sidewalk, right? So clubs, speakers, but it was public public address systems, right? Yeah, but again, it was it was records, not live bands. Yeah, so yeah, correct, correct, DJ, correct. Even if they're not doing remixing, even though even though Bob Marley had had bands forever, right? He and Peter, they Peter had Parker. a singing group, the Whalers. Mm-hmm. They were a yeah. harmony group, and but they were not rhythm section on their own yeah, right, right. studio Nash, band. They played backup for Johnny Nash. When he was yeah, 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 they yeah. put a band together and go tour England pretty early in the 70s. Mm-hmm. So by this yeah. point, Bob Marley and the Whalers are a real band, but they're touring England. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, so that's that's Cool Herc. Anything else we need to say about Cool Herc? Nope. Not, okay. not from my perspective. 
So I think we were Jamaican. Came here was twelve. Yes, <laughs> we got the the whole Jamaica. The Lexus Jamaican heritage has been respected. Okay, so the second of the the Holy Trinity that they talk about in this episode is Africa Bambata, who's from the east side of the Bronx. Cool Herc's on the west side. It's also interesting that Cool Herc played funk and not reggae because reggae did not get over with mm. African Americans. Yep, it was way later in the seventies before you know that stuff was tolerated. Yep. At all, yep. and I think it was white rock fans that first got into reggae, but that's yeah, because of the weed. Yep, the weed and the whole all these cultural things. Like, well, I don't know. I mean, I mean, yeah, Blackwell talked about how he told Bob, "You got to mix the guitar in. You got to just for the." And then the yep. weed was a big seller. So, and that's Chris Blackwell of Island Records and and Bluebeat before that. Um, yep. And then you got, but anyway, you got Africa Bambata, who's a gang member with the black spades i believe but he's become conscious and so he's trying to organize peace activities and unity activities and break up the grand bang violence and he sees what dj cool herc is doing and is like i can do that too are we not going to talk about his later situations we can at some point, but I don't okay. want to dwell on that because, you know, I did yeah, a lot of episode, yeah. two episodes on Jerry Lee Lewis and I didn't talk about him, you know, yeah. all the endless allegations against Maybe him. So, yeah. yeah, there's a Me Too aspect to Africa Bambata, but that's pretty minor in the historical aspect. I mean, the main well, thing, I don't know if it's minor, but we're not talking about it, it now. It's so about minors. We'll talk about it. We can talk about that. <laughs> we can talk ass. about that right after this. Let me just yeah, say yeah. why people care about him. Then we can talk about why people are mad at him. People care about him because he had a bigger crate. Like, you know, they talk about the crates and that's the records that DJ had. And Cool Herc had some really unique records like the Bongo Band and some other things and brought Apache in. But Bambata had a really Catholic taste. He brought in stuff like Kraftwerk and just mountains of records and mm-hmm. and and mixed them. Um, and later on, he's going to have a successful record career in the early 80s. But that's not what we're talking about yet. But the main thing he did was he brought knowledge and, and Afrocentrism and this consciousness to it and and the the four pillars of hip-hop djing emceeing which is talking on the microphone master um breakdancing which is what these kids it's called breakdancing because they were dancing to break beats which is something i didn't realize until this show even though i until you started doing it yourself (laughs) (laughs) i was doing it in the early 80s nasty nate it's only jacket but uh, had had no context doing it to the b-52s and the human league but um that was a seizure. That was not the break dancing. some rock Yeah, and so uh, and and the fourth pillar is graffiti, and so it's yep. it's Bambata packaged hip hop as a full cultural. He, but he, he but he called it something interesting. I like he called it aerosol culture, which I thought was a very funny <laughs> way to put it. Yes, yes. Uh, no. And now, Eugene, now you can talk about the Me Too allegations about Africa. Well, he's got some kind of Billy Preston, Gary Glitter thing going on where there have been several young men uh, underage. He's like, yeah, you know, the guy's having sex with me and uh, that's not really what I came there for. So that's it. I just want to, I, I, you know, I've been relentless about MMA fighters who stumble down the same staircase and, you know, be relentless about, uh, so I gotta, you know, I mentioned it with Kobe. People don't like it. I don't care. So, you know, it yeah. should be mentioned. I, I think it's definitely fair to put in context and they definitely did not mention it in the show and they went out of their way to show him in the Bronx as a pillar of the neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah. There's multiple scenes of him talking to local people, hugging people, everything else. But that's that. 
Now, which terrorists... made me on which made me uneasy. Well, they were all older people. So whatever. There any, bro. Yeah, there weren't any Boy Scouts or whatever. Uh, yeah. Any page boys uh talking to him. But the third figure in the Holy Trinity is Grandmaster Flash. And he's the guy who turns the turntable into an instrument. So even though Cool Herc and radio DJs and disco DJs have been mixing records. Grandmaster Flash is the guy who figured out you could, if you put your hand on the vinyl, you could manipulate the record perfectly. And so you could, you could, you wouldn't have these train wrecks like Cool Herc. And I would kill to hear a tape of a Cool Herc set from back in the day. Like the oldest one I could find was from like 78, 79, when he had already, you know, absorbed Grandmaster Flash's technique. So I don't know what it sounded like, you know, before Grandmaster Flash came along. But Grandmaster Flash is a fucking genius. Absolute. Yeah. absolute. Put, his, put his systems together, like like Einstein's in the Neubaden, put his systems together by like found materials and shit that he would just, you know, that's a speaker. I'm going to take it apart, see what happens. So I, I love that whole mad scientist aspect. Of it. Yeah. And also the, the reclamation aspect where he's taking speakers out of burned out cars and, yep, and you yep, know, yep. building these things. And eventually there's the whole blackout uh, in New York in 77 and a ton of musical equipment finds its way to these DJs in the Bronx. Which, so are, which I wrote, I wrote about extensively for Ozzy.com, the New York City blackout. Not the first one, which is fairly peaceful in the 60s, but the one in the 70s when I, I think it was... 77, I was watching Beretta at the time. Thought my TV was broken. Uh, <laughs> a classic yeah. Beretta. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So anyway, Grandmaster Flash uh, does makes takes the analog remixing that Cool Herc was doing and yeah. turns it into an instrument where he can spin the records back and he can play the same break over and over, switch back from record to record and just completely manipulate it. So all of turntablism traces itself back to Grandmaster Flash, who later puts together a posse of MCs, and we'll talk about that later, and that's the whole second half of this episode, as it'll appear on Let It Roll. I do wanna ask, though, what was your first exposure to somebody turntabling, playing records as instruments? I know in my hometown, when people saw that, which wasn't until the 80s, that there was, all the rednecks were just like, well, that's stupid, anybody can do that, and then, well, he's disrespecting the records. He's touching the records. Ah, ah, ah. And, the, and, and, you know, which Grandmaster Flash acknowledged that that was a total taboo and that everybody hated everybody who knew anything about records knew you did not touch the records. But people in the hip hop scene saw what he was doing and forgave him because it was clearly genius. What was your first reaction to that, Eugene? What I, I think I have to say, I have to say, look, look I, I remember once being in Miami and I was uh, out of my head. Uh, you could take that any way you like. I was in a club, and it was like four thirty in the morning. What and, year is this? Hey man, what are you a cop? No, <laughs> just, just, just listen to the story. All right, all right, all right. About years, all right. <laughs> and so then, per per periodically, what happened is they would just turn on an air raid siren. It wasn't musical. It was just an air raid siren. And I, at first, I thought it was like to signal to people. You know, we're gonna roach your buzz. We're gonna queer your vibe, and we want you to leave because this is how we say, you know, time, gentlemen, time. But the reality of it was, it wasn't. It was a audio sonic affectation. And when I heard, first heard uh, uh, scratching, I thought it was an audio sonic affectation, mm -hmm. and I didn't really see that it was going to. And I probably heard it. I mean, I met Dollar Bill in '77. 
right? 76, 77. And so that summer I, I heard it for the first time because he had some tapes with him, some cassette tapes of him doing his deal. And I remember thinking that was cute and interesting, but I, I didn't believe it, it would, you know, it would travel. But keep in mind, I'm the guy who said that the internet was a flash in the pan, that the Beastie Boys would never make it and so on and so forth, you know? So, um, because it was, it was the only thing I had to compare it to sonically at that point was kind of like a guitar solo but it was in terms of what i was used to hearing from a hendrix like that it, which is polychromatic it was pretty monochromatic you know and i was like yeah so you know when i came back from that summer hanging around with dollar bill one of my friends eric and kyle uh down the street greenwich uh, they had a basement set up and we got milk crates and we put the turntables up and, and tried to do it. But, you know, in the hands of some, I mean, this is the thing that's unappreciated about Grandmaster Flash. Me in a basement in Flatbush with two records, that was ju just scratching. <laughs> and when you see him in it, when he's putting the crayon marks on it and he's counting out the beats and he's going, now that's, you know, this guy is a musician. It's very different, you know? And I discovered at that time, it was not as easy to do as whatever it was that I was hearing, so. Well, let me say this. When you were growing up, though, in, in Brooklyn, right? Because yeah. what I thought was so fascinating watching this and then also, you know, anticip anticipating like this conversation is, you know, there's a lot that when you see documentaries or shows like Hip Hop Evolution that they're assuming or projecting on everybody, right? So there's a dynamic where mm. I don't think people realize in, in terms of the breadth and depth of New York and also with regard to Bronx versus what's going on yes. in Brooklyn. Yeah, so yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Was it a situation? Was it to the point again, especially at your age, the age you were at, like as a kid, like, is it just like, was it, was it might as well have been another country? Like all that kind of shit yes. they're talking about. Yes. It's like, oh yeah. Yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah, the yeah, 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 yeah. Like, yeah, the, the the likelihood that I would get on the D train and go up into the Bronx for anything was like just madness. The first time I did that was when I was in 14 in high school uh, on the swim team. And we had a swim meet up at, at Clinton, which I think was one of the high schools up in the Bronx. And I got, of course, got into a fight there. Right, yeah. So <laughs> yeah. my, welcome to the Bronx fist fight. And but for a long time, since Dollar Bill, who was a Brooklyn guy, who was the first guy who I had met. Uh, who was doing it? I insisted to some of my friends that it was that birthplace was Brooklyn, but of course I was terribly wrong about that. But Brooklyn had other things going on, and it, Brooklyn had, you know, um, I think, I mean, disco roller skating, and this was happening, was big. Empire Roller Drone, they've done documentaries on it. Empire Roller Drone, which was on Empire Avenue, which is right, you know, kind of where Ebbets Field used to be, right? Kind of kitty corner to the, the Brooklyn Zoo, the, you know, older Dirty Bastards things about was this thing called Empire Roller Drome. And they started having music, but disco roller skating with DJs and so on. So, but that whole, that whole Bronx thing didn't start to make itself known until in Brooklyn, like as something for somebody to do until maybe 78, 79. And keep in mind, if you were a gang member in, in Brooklyn and the big gang in Brooklyn was the, the Jolly Stompers, which I guess was happened to be Mike Tice's game, a gang, um, you were not going to go up into the Black Spades territory, just roll in there. You you know, it's just like the Hell, Hell's Angels and the Vagos and the Mongols, you, you know, you you got you to gotta respect. But I mean, the confusing thing is, is, I mean, the drug trade, weed was so bad and so cheap then. I don't know what people were fighting about, I, I, but I guess if it was illegal and they were selling it, it's something worth fighting about. So, 
and that's one other thing we should mention was that Cool Herc's um, Toastmaster was financing the whole thing by selling bags. And so yeah. he's talking. He, so, you know, and I Co- have to tell Coca-Cola you, I, I, I got to say, like, if you you, you don't <laughs> the weed that I was smoking in 1976 is like was <laughs> you would get if you tried to sell that today, you would get beaten. <laughs> so we we technology has come very far. Yes, this is yes. very bad, very 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 bad weed. Yeah, but I, I just want to mention that Coco Rock, who was was the the MC with with Cole Herc, was financing it was was dealing pot right there from the stage. And the and the last thing I want to mention before we roll out of this is that Grandmaster Flash's frustration when he figured out how to play the turntable was that when he first started performing, all he wanted to do was get people to dance, like any any DJ. Yeah, yeah, that's But right. what he was doing was so novel, people were rushing the stage, like it's the Beatles or whatever, like, and they're not dancing. Um, and so that teases the, the what will be the second half of the Letter to Roll episode and the next one of these we do in two weeks. He had to get some MCs on stage with him to put on the show. And we'll talk yeah. about that next time. Any final thoughts, guys? No. No, I so think we'll that, be back. no, I think the final thoughts ahead, again, I mean, final thoughts are, I think it's really interesting when you have a certain history that's been laid out in different kinds of forms and how this uh, hip hop evolution, the, the pacing of it and the, the perspective just seem to be kind of like in its own universe and really seem to be more touristy, right? It was really fascinating seeing this guy's like, oh, I'm a rapper. I love the thing. And, but people don't know about the history. And it just seemed kind of strange because you think so many people do know the history. So that's the thing that kind of yeah. shocked me. Like, who is this for, right? And so I guess, you know, the bastardization of Cool Herc's background made sense uh, given the fact that, you know. <laughs> He's well, back on that. A little bit. Well, there's the thing that I would have touched on, which um, I don't want to. I don't want to derail the show necessarily. No, go on. But uh, <laughs> you know, th- th- this is a story in my mind about a lot of different things, and um, the you touch on it in the beginning in a way that's more significant than they did in the actual documentary about. You know, I'm probably one of the generations of of New Yorkers who remembers when white people lived in the city that wasn't just the Upper West Side. Mm. You know, I remember when white people used to live in the Bronx and I remember when white people used to live in Brooklyn. And the the untold story of this is what they've abandoned it for. And a conversation I remember having with Lawrence Ferlinghetti, you know, talking about Little Italy, he goes, you know, he goes, I still live here. He goes, all the Italians, they made a little bit of money and they moved out. This is Lawrence Ferlinghetti, San Francisco poet, and uh, Little Italy shrinks and they discover there's no culture where they've moved out to and they try to come back and they can't because Little Italy is bought up by the Chinese, which is something that's happened in New York as well. They move out to Mineola, they move out to Jersey, the Italians move out, they say, oh, we wanna come back. You can't because now Chinatown has expanded, Little Italy is sunk. Uh, shrunk and uh, you know what the South Bronx became what the Bronx became were seats of great culture you can go to Harlem now I mean I remember going to Harlem in 77 78 I go to Harlem now it finally it's nice to see people get a certain certain small portion of the pie that that you know it was kind of like I remember talking to some a Haiti expert and saying, why is Haiti so screwed up and the Dominican Republic is okay? Because underneath it is this kind of unspoken narrative of black folks being fuck ups, right? But in the actual fact, she laid it out going back from the Haitian revolt to now, it was people just 
punishing them for that French, for the revolution, you exactly. know? Um, yeah. So, so, you know, and here again, you know, there were unkind words, uh, but the, the fi- fires that were driven and, uh, you know, I don't want to get into the weird city kind of Semitic stuff. Overwhelmingly landlords yeah, burning, burning down, properties burning down the buildings for, for yeah. insurance money. Yeah. Yep. You know, yeah. And, yeah. and the black folks were stuck in the city because they couldn't get out and get anywhere else. I mean, right. You know. Right. So, oh, yeah, but that's, you know, where Trump comes in because then he's building these developments like out of Starrett City that he's doing a black folk because, well, look, those people are animals. Look what they did when in actual fact it was driven by guys like him and developers. But I, like I said, I don't want to derail this year. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. So. So anyway, we'll be back in two and a half weeks. If you listen to Let It Roll, we'll be back to talk about uh, the DJ wars between disco and hip hop and who really invented rapping and all that in the second half of this episode. Here's DJ Cool Herc demonstrating his technique. Still no 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 vocals in it, then I will go into Baby Yui, you know the Mexican. And it was like, whoa, I think we got some hit, you know, because people was like, oh, whoa, everybody was like, yeah, 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 I'm feeling this, oh, yeah, 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 you know. The instrumental breaks on the record. And here's the adventures of Grandmaster Flash on the Wheels of Steel, his first commercial record to feature a DJ scratching and mixing. And now a word from our sponsors. And welcome back. We're finishing our discussion of Hip Hop Evolution on Netflix, episode season one, episode one. This is the second part of it. We talked previously about how the the holy trinity of DJs. Now we're going to get into MCs. And there's a little bit of controversy here because Africa Bombada, for one, wants to take the line. Yeah. And I know you guys are down on Bombada, but he earned his place despite whatever offenses he had. Anyway, his line is, rap was always there. And that essentially, it's a part of African-American culture that's always been there. He references Cab Calloway, gospel. They have a nice uh, segment of the Jubilaires doing a song called Noah. Did y'all check that song out? Remember that one? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah. That guy was ugly, but great singing. Great singing, but remarkably not handsome individual. Am I wrong? Do you remember that? Well, you, you forget the, you forget the uh, special I, club that Eugene <laughs> is in, being handsome and being able to sing and perform, right? Like a lot of these. Easy on that second one, the being able to sing part, but I got you. Yeah. Anyway, nah, but, but nah, it, I thought the I thought the guy had a great look. I liked his look. He, he what he could control, he definitely had a good <laughs> handle on. He had a little mustache and everything else. But that, that's the side, and there's no reason for me to be kicking on a on someone I'm almost certainly dead who's a great performer. And, and I dug it, and I'm looking forward to checking out more of them. But Bombada also rec- rep- recognized Gil Scott Heron, uh, famous for The Revolution Will Not Be Televised, Sonia Sanchez or Warren Robinson. Yes, The Last Poets, although Bombada didn't mention them. They do mention them later in the show, but Bombada didn't mention them. And then Muhammad yeah, okay. Ali, 
and his famous rhymes and raps uh, going into his boxing matches in the 60s. Then Nelson George comes on, the music writer, and references Barry White and Isaac Hayes, who did a lot of talking on their early 70s records. Isaac Hayes is kind of post stack or he's Ar- with stacks but Arthur not- Price Arthur Arthur Price sock too. Oh they, John, they Luc- John Lucien. I didn't catch anybody mentioning those cats, but they, they fit right they, in there. They but- did not, but they also did talking. Yeah. Yeah. And and then yeah, and Barry White, obviously early King of Disco that did a ton of talking. And then it gets controversial though when they bring up the radio DJs in New York City. They bring up Gary Bird, also known as Imhotep Gary Bird. Ken Spiderweb and the great Frankie Crocker. Frankie who, Crocker. Yes, this guy. Frankie definitely. Crocker was really wonderful. Paid his dues to society. Went to prison for uh, payola because they actually do put people in jail for payola. I guess only black. If you're people. black, they put you. Yeah, they put you in jail for payola. Well, Alex or, Reed got it, but I don't think. Yeah, he, he was time, playing right? black music, so you know. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, he got what's coming to him. So anyway, yeah. but Frankie Crocker used to end his shows at eight o'clock with King Pleasure. There I go. There I go. There I go. There I go. I sang yeah. on Saturday, so I'm a little rusty with the pipes. <laughs> a little, but, a little uh, hoarse. Yeah. See. An authentic New York City survivor here on the show. So they bring up Frankie Crocker, but then they get to Curtis Blow talking about what he calls the first king of rap. And it's controversial to this day, DJ Hollywood, who was a club disco DJ. And I I find this interesting that the disco DJs were called DJs, although they're mostly guys who talked over the records. They were playing records, but they weren't really doing a ton of mixing, but they were talking, but hip hop, has this distinction between DJs, which is in hip hop is Grandmaster Flash of African Bambada, who are not talking, who are not on the mic, versus MCs, Master of Ceremonies, and they are talking. But if you're in if you're in the disco scene, then you're a DJ. So DJ Hollywood, King New York City DJ around this time. Like he was making serious bank just to play club yeah. gigs, to play his records yeah. and talk on the mic. And you know, the guy behind wave your hands in the air like you just don't care, or at least popularized it for the modern generation. And Curtis Blow is all in on him. Russell Simmons is all in on him. But you notice yeah. Melly Mel and uh others are not all in on him. It seems like nobody from the Bronx, nobody that was in the Bronx hip hop scene wants anything to do with the disco guys. And they're, they're basically still bitter about being kids in t-shirts getting thrown out of the disco clubs because they were not wearing satin button down shirts. And Hey, you know, you know, you know who's pants. getting, you know, you know, who's getting the disco clubs, me, that's who. <laughs> and, and when I saw those raggedy kids roll up there and they couldn't get in, I was happy they couldn't get in here. You know? No baseball hats, no jeans, no. Uh, get the hell out of here with that. You're not gonna no, let those raggedy Negroes come in here, are you? <laughs> <laughs> Put together some scratch from your job. Go buy some nice clothes. Get yourself a silk scarf like I had, and get yourself in the club because they. they not listen, everybody let, was let me giving middle-aged white ladies nah, dance lessons. Nah, 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 come on. Let, let me tell. You, let me. Tell, they were college students who needed <laughs> dance lessons badly. But listen, let me tell you. The reality of it was, they were had a propensity. To let, I used to think I was getting let in the Studio 54 because I was like hip. The reality of it was they let me in the Studio 54 by my estimation as an adult now because they thought I was selling weed, <laughs> you know, or party, or party favors. So those guys, if they had gotten a scarf, if they had gotten a un 
you know, unconstructed oatmeal jacket with the, 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 the sleeves pushed up to the elbows and their platform shoes, like some of us had, they would have gotten in. Were they aware know? of that and, and just of course, rebelling it, against it? Or like, what? what's the... They were from the Bronx. They were broke. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, no, they're two they're things. Right away, that bridge and tunnel thing was a fucking serious reality. I mean, you know, people would not... They would stop talking to you if they found out you were Brooklyn because the mathematics were pretty clear. I'm not going to get on a train with you to your house to have sex with you. It's a godforsaken place in Brooklyn that I can get back from. You know, I'm not having you over because I don't know you well enough. So Brooklyn is a non-starter, man. Just, you know, a non, non-starter. And so, uh, I mean, I think I got, I got lucky that way one time. And it wasn't because of a disco. It was because of the mud club. Of course, that set the template for the entire rest of my life because it happened to be the soon-to-be ex-wife of a famous punk rock musician. But that's neither here nor there. So oh, uh, the reality Jesus. of it, the reality of it was, you know, and it also we sh- sell short shrimp. I was waiting for them to mention, and they did it. But the, uh, some of the Latino, they just did talk about the Latinos with the kind of the break dancing. But one of the early Latino uh, DJs, and again, he was too busy talking play a record or maybe he played the record did a lot of Sir Monty Rock the third who was uh who was already famous by 1973 70, 73 74 so and was uh, he in Manhattan he too? was he was he was and well he had a distinction of also I, I believe him to have been a uh, gay and um it was just if you I mean he had three three bona fide big hits um, but yeah, nobody cares how you wear your hair, darling. My wig is wetter. My chiffon is wetter. I mean, I, I listen to that stuff now and I feel coked up just listening to it. <laughs> uh, but there was a whole scene, but there was a whole scene behind him that later ended up, I mean, you know, you know, Cubanos and, and like, you know, people from the DR, they, they, they um, it was like, it's like Louisiana, you know, you have a lot of dark skinned Puerto Ricans, Cubans. And so the interplay, I mean, the only reason I wasn't stabbed to death in the, in the lower East side back in the early eighties was because of that. If it had been Mexicans, they would have murdered me because they don't feel like there's an affinity. But if you come from Puerto Rico or Cuba, Dominican Republic, you know, you, you spoken Spanish with lots of black skinned people who are also Puerto Rican or Cuban or Dominican Republic. So. So back to the topic at hand. One 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 line yes. that I didn't get into. <laughs> one line I didn't get into. I hijacked your show. Yeah. This is your show too, Eugene. We're all we're all friends here. So Dan Charnas, author of the Big Payback, gets a great quote in about Frankie Crocker. He says, Frankie Crocker is not the founder, not a founder of hip hop, because he hated hip hop. That's because the DJs all bit his shit. <laughs> the MCs all bit his shit. So, you know, if you listen to the brief snippets of Frankie Crocker and DJ Hollywood, you can tell this is what the yeah. kids were listening to. I mean, I think one thing from obsessive study of music history that I've learned is always assume that the musicians have the most superficial knowledge of musical history possible. These people are significant because of their talent, generally not because yep. of their scholarly research. So I'm not yep. expecting kids in the Bronx to have been like conversant with Cab Calloway and Pigmeat Markham and maybe not even the last poets and Gil Scott Heron who never really had a big time hit, you know, but I guarantee you they heard Frankie Crocker on the radio and they heard DJ Hollywood in the clubs and he got their attention. But that's, Beside the point. And I do want to, now that I mentioned Pygmy Markham, Markham, mm-hmm. Markham, Markham, 
yeah, Hollywood is interviewed on the sh- segment on the show, and he drops he references Frankie Crocker, he references the Last Poets, and Pygmy Markham, and the host. What's the host's name again, Alexi? I know you're a big fan. Uh, it's, well, Rwandan. Oh, Shad. Shad. Yeah, Shad. Shad. Yeah. So, has never heard of Pygmy Markham, which you know it, it totally makes sense. Why would it? Canadian kid who came of age in the 90s know anything about Pygmy Markham and I only came across him because I originally came across him because I was a Red Fox fanatic and so Uh. if you read a book about Red Fox you're going to learn about Pygmy Markham but I also came across Pygmy Markham reading about the history of African-American performers who wore blackface to perform which included Pygmy Markham and Rufus Mm -hmm. Thomas who was famous at Stax Records you know walking the dog and chicken dance and all that stuff chicken dance and there's a great YouTube clip of Pygmy Markham crying about the death of blackface and minstrelsy, which I just find interesting. Anyway, he was he he an art form that he enjoyed, but he also was not only an exemplar of a very retrograde form of entertainment, he was a precursor of rap. I mean, if you listen to Here Comes the Judge, it's straight up hip hop. I mean, it, you know that like like Cool Modi mentions that's a rap they would rhyme over. I mean. They, a break they would just take the beat off the pygmy marker mm-hmm. but then if you listen to his cadence he's dj hollywood straight up got his cadence which is hip-hop 101 cadence straight from pygmy Markham. so you know thoughts alexi you've been very quiet. no i guess the question is do you have to say like he hated it do you have to embrace and love well, crocker that you it. created no for crocker right so the thing is like oh yeah. he's not a part because he hated it you know, do you have to embrace and love something that you inspired and helped create? I don't think you do. Not, I don't think so. Not to get credit either. And I think it's pretty generous of of Russell Simmons and uh, you know Curtis Blow to give these guys their propers. Although, and I totally understand why Melly Mel and and you know Grand Wizard Theodore and other guys from the Bronx are not letting those beefs go. I mean, you know, it's just just how it is. You're not you're not going to let old mods and rockers expect them to drop the, the the hatchet you know i mean people had these beefs in the in their day and they were on opposite sides and you know if they don't want to drop it they don't want to drop it i mean and frankie crocker like if you read the big payback my god frankie crocker hated hip-hop i mean he went out of his way to keep that shit off the radio for decades decades but, there, but there, yeah but there was also i mean there was also frankie was like an establishment guy man mm. and there you, you know people not at the point from 2020 it's hard to imagine but record labels were big business and big industry and and like i mean if you could have seen from 1975 to 2020 you wouldn't believe it you if i I had a joe ciccarelli the guy who produced the oxbow records said he took sean fanning around to like sony arista so you should listen to this kid he's got something to say he was talking about napster and these executives who had been in those seats for 25 years just looked at him and were like, yeah, great. You seem like a nice guy. I got stuff to do. And they sent him out of there. So you could imagine, I mean, Frankie making music in a basement, uh, scratch, making this noise over records. And these guys who atonal just hollering on the, on the background. I don't care if a thousand people show up to see that. That's not music. And Frankie Crocker was old school that way. Of course, you know, and then it was the issue of his control. You know, he couldn't control it, right? I mean, it's like, you know, when, when guys found out you played punk rock in 1981 and people were already saying, oh, punk rock is dead. What are you doing? You know, because, you know, Blondie was making money. Talking Heads were making money. Uh, strange. 
Is, yeah. is there a time? You, is that the reason why a lot of individuals I spoke to who, on the um, business side uh, of music, were talking about when they were first trying to break in, how especially with in hip hop, how individuals, the labels, probably for the past 10, 10, 10, 10 20 years, geez, that old. Um, you downplay your education. You downplay anything that 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 just smells of corporate. You have individuals like just pretending that they were like you know they dropped out of college or they're just totally trying to downplay their academic and their professional credentials and instead try to have a whole street kind of dynamic. You know, so do you think that that so we talk about Crocker and somebody who you know the the, the reaction against hip hop, but then also this whole corporatist perspective. Like, when did that? switch around like is it something that i think it switched around when puff daddy over you know uh, the business in the mid 90s uh, that's what i think you know when jay-z and rockefeller got really big and puff daddy got really big on his own those guys came to model and they had a lot of street credibility and if you were just your average you know uh business exec and tell that story and i mean i'm blanking on the guy's name the jewish guy that became Russell simmons right hand man Rick Rubin left um, uh, oh. Def Jam. Uh, that guy, uh, you know, yeah, and just yeah. Rick Rubin was a rich kid. Not, you know, these not guys. Chris Lady. No, 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 no. Chris Lady, um, like Chris. It's it's a very yeah, Hebrew yeah. sounding name, and I'm embarrassed. I can't remember it. So, it's a, but it shouldn't be on the topic list. That's because we're strained. But I want we need to Grandmaster forming hip hop's first supergroup, so that talk about the this you know the history of where I'm seeing come from, which is confusing because before they already talked about you know uh cool herx mc and and others but there really was no like the furious five before grandmaster Flash put them together and that's you know mel kid creole cowboy scorpio and raheem and you know grandmaster flash talks about his dilemma when he used the screen that he was doing which is this revolutionary technique turns turntables and records into an instrument instead of people which is what he wanted to do, or rushing the stage to see what in the hell is this freak doing? And that, you know, was not what he wanted. So he just started putting a mic on the other side of the table. And eventually, you know, at first it's just random dumbasses talking. And then eventually Mel and his brother Kid Creole up there, and they've been practicing in the room trying to be Frankie Crocker at home. And they start rapping. And they bring in, you know, three other guys and Grandmaster the Furious Five. This was the rap group I ever heard. I heard the message and, um, what was it white fever? Or... White lines. Not white lines. White lines. Yeah. Oh, really? So you didn't hear Sugar Hill Gang first? I didn't hear Sugar Hill Gang. I do not know how, but I mean, I was ten years old, so and I missed a lot of shit. You know, I was in Arlington, Texas, for a year, and, and was pretty fast ACDC and Van Halen at the time. You know, I wasn't listening to any radio, so you know, I missed, um, I missed. Uh, the Sugar Hill Gang entirely, but but who know, who would you have heard that from though? Was it who in your school or who in your peer group or whoever was the one that introduced you to the music? It was Junior Lops is playing it on his jam box while we were breakdancing. And like I said last <laughs> time, people were breakdancing to like the Eurythmics <laughs> and shit. And so finally, where the black balloons. kids, yeah, and the black kids like. Like I'm pretty sure had thinly veiled contempt for our attempts to break dance, you know. <laughs> but one day Junior brought his jam box and, and played us some real shit. And so that's and I remember going, Wow, this is interesting, you know. But I mean, and also you gotta keep in mind in the seventies and early eighties, 
the FM radio color barrier was intense, especially in the little yeah. redneck town in Texas. I mean, it was inward music. I mean, any you know, Stevie Wonder got booed off the stage opening for the Rolling Stones. That was in Hawaii. Imagine in Texas, yeah. it was way worse than that. I mean, the racism was, I remember being shocked in eighth grade when I found out that some of my black friends liked Michael Jackson. Like, think how stupid I had to be to think that. Like, I'm like, what? You like N-word music? And I, like, I'm thinking this to myself. And then, you know, then I'm kind of doing the math. And I'm like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, okay, I'm, I'm with it. <laughs> and of course, then Beat It comes out, and I like Michael Jackson. You know, so it was a very confusing time. Did you to try be to do the curl cracker. with your hair? I never, no, uh, I never did Over any of that. And I really didn't. Yeah, I only showed up to breakdance a couple times. Uh, like I never even. You what know, was your like, What but, was your go to breakdance uh, move, Nate? <laughs> falling on my back and spinning around. I mean, you know, I only did it the one one or two times. But there were guys in it every every day, and they were some of the biggest goobers in school. But anyhow, let's see what I wanted to do. One last thing, which is some of the key quotes from the show. And so I, I, we already had the Grandmaster Flash. I didn't want them to be fascinated. I wanted them to dance. And then um, George Nelson's huge legacy of rhythmic talking over beats that hip hop is an extension of. And I liked his whole riff about how, you know, Grandmaster Flash subverting the technology and making an instrument was fit in with the tradition of like jazz musicians taking the, the marching band saxophone and turning it into a jazz yeah. instrument, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Charlie, Charlie Christian, yeah. Yeah, that, that, he was a guitarist. Well, you know that. Yes. Okay. But Charlie well, Christian, that... he mentioned he mentions Charlie Christian as somebody who like took an instrument that was kind of you know an yeah. unsung instrument and the and she's do you true. watch this thing or is it just I me? Did, I watched it four times. <laughs> <laughs> she's like, but I lived it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. Forgetting Eugene, I think you lived part of it. So, yeah, uh, no, I mean, yeah, he's, he's acting like Charlie Christian wasn't mentioned. He was mentioned, you know. Fair enough, fair enough. But, but uh, yeah, and then I guess that's all the really big quotes I have. Any final thoughts on this first episode? Eugene. Uh, you know, I, I do a sex column, and uh, it's called uh, Sex with Eugene. And, uh, and at one meeting, nobody would say the name and after the first one, somebody was pretty quiet, said, uh, they, they, was put on the spot, this woman named Pooja, and they said, what do you think about the column? She goes, sex with Eugene, better than expected. <laughs> 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 and of course, they had suck in for a bit. People were like laughing. I was like, yeah, keep laughing. Keep laughing, wise guys. And uh, so, But I would have to say, your constant and continual hectoring to watch the show, it ended up being, uh, for me, actually, uh, much better than expected. So. Oh, cool. And Alexi, yeah, we know it. you had some beef no, about the Jamaican. I, no, it's true. I enjoyed it as well. I think from the beginning, because they just totally missed the boat on dance hall and the Jamaican traditions, it made it suspect from the get-go. And it made me wonder how many of the story, what mm -hmm. other stories were they overlooking, right? Like, who was informing yeah. them? What's their agenda? Even for the Russell Simmons with the little beef at the end with the DJs, I was really wondering, like, what kind of alliances were in place? Why, you know, some people like really shitting on DJ Hollywood and some people weren't with the Frankie Crocker thing. Like, what was really going on behind the scenes historically between all of these guys, like, over the years? Why there seemed to be these tight things? But at the end of the day, from what you mentioned earlier, it could just be as simple as holding on to being turned away as a kid you know from yeah the big and also hit Russell music. was from Queens and came along later 
And Curtis Blow. You mean Russell? You mean Russell Sanders Simmons? Yes, Russell apparently in hiding Simmons. Uh, not just because yeah. of the coronavirus, but not he's been you, in hiding. Like, yeah, he's he's been off off of soil for a while. But Curtis Blow, I think, came from Queens. I could be wrong about that, but he came along a little. Maybe he's from the Bronx. I don't Harlem? know. He's not Curtis Blow is not from Queens. I thought he's from Harlem. He's from Harlem. So he, he's not from the Bronx. Yeah, he, that's yeah, my he, point. For sh- so whereas <laughs> Molly Bell is from the Bronx. Nice save. And, I think, and they had that and they had that beef. I mean, you know me, Eugene, I can't tell Brooklyn from the rest of Long Island. Like you're from Long Island. What's with the pretense that you know that Brooklyn's not Long Island? But I've I've seen maps. Anyhow. Yeah. Anyhow, this yeah. New York geography is very mysterious. But I, that's my theory on why Curtis Blow and Russell Simmons, plus they made it big. And, and I mean, Melly Mel made it big too, but a lot of these guys didn't. So, you know, I, I think that might be some of the legacy. But I, I'm very, I'm glad you like it. I'm looking forward to continuing this series. And honestly, I felt like the first season was just pretty meat and potatoes of stuff that I already knew. But the, the second and especially the third and especially the fourth season get into some stuff that I had not paid attention to. Stuff like the Memphis scene in the 90s that I hadn't paid any attention to or had yeah, underrated. Yeah. And and it continues to be just a really, really excellent series. So I look forward to continuing to discuss it with the two of you on Let It Roll. Nate, Alexi, and Eugene will be back next week with a discussion of Episode 2 of Hip Hop Evolution, From the Underground to the Mainstream, which discusses the first commercial rap records and how hip hop first crossed the bridge from the Bronx to Manhattan. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com.